Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we're exploring the digital revolution that's taking place across the world. We're having some great conversations with thought leaders and business executives who are deeply involved in leading the way for how the, everything in our world is changing from how we live, we work, play, learn, dream, and experience life around us. One of our regular guests here on Cloud Wars Live is Chris Lockhead, who's been an entrepreneur, an author, a CMO, and now he's a WorldCast podcaster along with being a best-selling author. Chris has his own podcast called Follow Your Different, and it's always a treat to hear his um, generally um, respectful, but not always, you know, highly respectful views on things. Very good at breaking down some, some of the big trends that are happening these days. Chris, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you. Senator Evans, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. I know, and, uh, and you know, uh, uh, sometimes a disrespectful respect or uh, respectful disrespect, right? I think that's, that's kind of fair. Yeah, hopefully I have generally respect for people. I have disrespect for stupidity. Mm -hmm. I have disrespect for not thinking about thinking. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, and some I, ideas I respect more than others, but it's actually, it's interesting. I, uh, speaking of disrespect on social media, I find it's taken me up till pretty much now to be able to have thoughtful conversations with people. So I'm now actually at a point, particularly on LinkedIn, I don't know if it's possible on Twitter, maybe where I can have thoughtful debates and I try super hard online to uh, say, hey, listen, I really appreciate your, your, your thoughtful response and with 100% respect, completely disagree. And, <laughs> and I got into this, um, I, I wrote this piece on LinkedIn recently about um, that if your brand doesn't dominate its category, it's worthless. And it got a lot of people very excited and there was a lot of debate about it. And, and this one guy sort of chimed in and said, you know, I'm sick and tired of hearing all these tech startup saying they're, they're uh, creating categories. This is bullshit and, and, and so forth and so on. And he was sort of pointing it at me. And, oh, and what he said specifically was taking their, you know, not really inventive thing and claiming that it's a new category is total BS. <laughs> and I said to him, hey, 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 listen, I'm the guy that wrote two books <laughs> that says you got to do product, company, and category if you want to design and dominate a category. Anyway, but, but it was all pretty good, respectful. He, he, he emails me in the back channel, messages me on LinkedIn. He said, hey, um, I really appreciate, this was the word he used, the discourse. Uh -huh. And he said, I've gone ahead and bought your two books. I'll let you know what I think. And that, to my knowledge, is the first time um, via a, a thoughtful, hopefully respectful um, dialogue, a little bit of an argument, uh, I sold some books. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But more importantly than that, you know, when we, when we post these things, what we're trying to do, of course, is engage in conversation, yeah. engage in dialogue, stimulate thinking. I think thinking about thinking is the most important thinking that we can do. And even when we disagree with, you know, it, you and I don't agree on everything, but you have different beliefs. I have different beliefs. You have opinions. I have opinions. I'm curious about them. I think your opinions are worth hanging out in. And I, you know, on the political front, by way of example, I listen to far right stuff, middle right stuff, center stuff, left stuff, far left. Stuff. I think it's important to percolate your brain, to populate your brain and let it percolate all sorts of different things, whether it's about technology, business, entrepreneurship, philosophy, politics, whatever it is. And I'm just happy 
that I'm finally learning to be slightly adult on social media and have thoughtful conversations with people. Chris, I think that's great. Congratulations. You know, that the, I too have been striving toward adulthood. I, I feel that occasionally I, I uh, cross the line into adulthood. I try to hang out there for periods of time, but I'm glad to hear that. And I know what you're saying. There was something I had written recently. It was about, it was called very specifically the 10 fastest growing, you know, major cloud companies. And IBM was at the bottom of the list because their growth rates lower than the other nine. And a guy wrote and he said, this is entirely out of context. He said, you know, you have no understanding of this. He said, IBM's cloud revenue is much bigger than a lot of these others. I said, that's true. And if we were going by, you know, revenue volume, IBM would be number three. But in terms of growth rates, they're number 10. He said, that's just wrong. So I thought of, you know, some different snarky things to say. I didn't say them and just said, okay, look, why don't we talk about this some other time? But here, you know, this is about fastest growing. But it was you can bump into these things and I find you can get really ticked off at them and get into a, you know, F me, F you, all this stuff, or you can just uh, try to get somebody to come around. I didn't have a book to sell him, but maybe he'll, uh, he'll come back and read another article. He's selling my book next time. Maybe. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and whatever you think about that, buy these books. <laughs> Chris, by the way, what are the names of those two books? Uh, my first book is called play bigger. And my second one's called niche down. All right. All right. Oh, and I have a third one coming, but I'm, it's, uh, we're in stealth mode right now. So. Oh, oh, so are you even allowed to say you have a third one coming? That's all I'm allowed to say. I'm contractually not allowed to say anything else. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But hey, on the IBM thing, I tweeted you back on this. Here's the thing I think nobody talks about with IBM. The reason they are, I certainly wouldn't say failing in the cloud. I, you, you, there's, there's certain things you could give them credit for, for sure. Um, so I, I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to paint them with a singular brush, so to speak. Their problem is one that nobody talks about, which is name me, uh, any categories of consequence in the cloud or in any forward leaning, uh, new mega trend where IBM is designing and dominating the category. I, I can't think of one. You know, some people might say I, Watson with AI, but Watson's not a freaking product, right? Um, and so Watson's an idea and it's a collection of technology. You can't call IBM, hey, uh, could you ship over four Watsons? And as a matter of fact, they're failing in a lot of categories. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, not long ago, they spun out their quote unquote marketing cloud into uh, a bunch of uh, private equity uh, folks bought their um, marketing assets and they're, they're coming out with a new company um, called Acoustic. And, and you watch, Acoustic is going to have its ass handed to them because I read the areas where Acoustic is trying to compete and they're going into a headlong battle with Adobe and HubSpot and you know existing marketing category kings and queens and we'll see maybe maybe they will get it right they'll do something innovative and try to design a new category but at least from the initial stuff i read on on the uh the launch of acoustic they're doing nothing that is differentiated whatsoever chris i thought yeah they sold some of the, their marketing applications business all to, to HCL, I thought it was, and but I think my uh, IBM has wanted to step out of that business. Yeah, and so but I go back to the central question, which is, 
it appears, you know way better than I do, that what IBM's doing is moving existing technologies to the cloud, great. Yeah. Um, but what new cloud or what new yeah. AI or what new IoT or DOG or FART or any of the new stuff, what new categories are they designing and, and, and are well positioned to dominate in? I, I don't know of one. I don't know. I don't study them the way you do, but I, I'd be curious. Well, the, uh, it's interesting with IBM and, uh, you know, we can move on after this, but it, August 2nd, there's, there's a huge bet that IBM is making here uh, that on August 2nd, they're going to have a big announcement about exactly how Red Hat will fit in with IBM and how Red Hat is going to be the catalyst that um, sort of repositions, recreates, re-energizes, reinvigorates this company that's uh, probably 25 times bigger than it is. Yeah. So, at least, uh, you know, I give IBM a lot of credit for being open to this possibility. Now, can they do it? Can they adapt? Can they really um, both keep Red Hat at arm's length, which they've promised to keep its uh, autonomy and independence going, but also then can they bring it close enough to get the leverage that they're going to need to fire something new up? Look, for some of us, this is not our first rock and roll show. What you just said sounds exactly like what IBM said when they bought Lotus, um, you know, back shortly after fire was discovered. Yeah. And, and so, look, I know there's new leadership and all that, and maybe they'll do it. Who knows? What I would say is, uh, and look, I hope they do. I think IBM is, is a crown jewel, and, and, and it, would be, it would be fantastic to see them leading in areas again. Uh, it, it is incredible to see what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft. I mean, truly, truly incredible uh, to think that's a trillion dollar market cap company today that, you know, was really, joke is probably too extreme, but I've never been criticized for being um, not extreme enough, I guess. Uh, they were certainly joke-esque, uh, and it was true that for the better part of a decade, they did nothing other than milk the cow, which is fine. They got some awesome cows to milk. Yes. Um, but um you know, who knows, maybe that's possible at IBM, but I don't, I would love to see uh, a plan for how they're going to design and dominate new giant market categories that matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, it's, uh, just one quick follow-up on that uh, piece I wrote this morning about IBM's earnings, which came out yesterday. So if you go back seven quarters, so this is the fourth quarter of 2017. So not that long ago. <clears throat> but IBM reported the cloud revenue of 5.5 billion, which at the time was more cloud revenue for that three months than Amazon had or Microsoft had. They had a bigger cloud business than either of those. And uh, yesterday they reported their cloud revenue for the second quarter of 2019 was 4.7 billion. And later today when Microsoft's announcing, I'm betting Microsoft's quarterly crowd cloud revenue is going to be over 10 billion. So I think, unfortunately, there's a, uh, you know, for IBM, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. IBM's uh, been stuck trying to figure out where can they harness all this stuff they have and the ideas they have into something that's more meaningful to customers. And Microsoft over those seven quarters has doubled now the revenue in the cloud that IBM has. So crazy Incredible. business. So Chris, can we uh, chalk up Microsoft's success in that type of area? Do they have a chief growth officer? You have some <laughs> thoughts on the CGO? There's this new title. I started to hear it a little while ago. And there's a slow, steady drumbeat of chief 
growth officer. And uh, I, I find this um, interesting. Um, my friend uh, Eddie Yoon wrote the definitive uh, HBR article on growth called um, Why Category Creation is the Ultimate Growth Strategy. So uh, one of the reasons I, I'm sort of seeing these growth officer types is a lot of them are doing um, you know, category design, category creation type stuff. So I think that's cool. Um, and so I saw this report that said that, um, what was the number? 14%, this is from Adweek, uh, only 14% of companies say they have a CGO. And so, look, I don't really know what one is, um, but here's what I'm to glean. Uh, often the chief growth officer sits on top of the CMO um, and people are saying it's a quote unquote hybrid role that's part marketing, part sales, part product, part technology, and part quote unquote, according to ad week, consumer advocate. So I don't know, these things all sound like things the executive team should be doing anyway to me, but <laughs> if they're not focused on these things, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so maybe it's stupid. I don't know. But part of me thinks maybe it's not so stupid. And the interesting thing, if you start poking around about uh, uh, folks doing this, is it's sort of a hybrid, actually, of uh, CMO and CIO and now uh, CDO, right? And, you know, remember it was, I don't know, at least a decade ago now, Gartner came out and said, the CMO is going to have more uh, tech spend than the CIO. And one of these interesting things, in, uh, Adweek uh, po um, points out a survey that, uh, that's been done on CGOs. They say six, uh, companies with a CGO are 65% more likely to be investing in new marketing technology and 48% more likely to be building AI and machine learning uh, for marketing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, th that's something, right? Because if you know the off the top of your head, you say, "Well, chief growth officer is just a fancy new name for a chief revenue officer, which is a fancy new name for the head of sales." But as you put those pieces into context with ML, AI, the things about uh, Martech and so on, like that, it it is a it's a very interesting space. But then, you know, what is the what's the CEO doing in, in some of these categories? So Chris, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm stuck on it. I think that sometimes we, we tend to dream up these titles. Chief Digital Officer, I believe, is sort of in somewhat decline these days, not the function or the importance of digital, but that you know, you're going to have one person there. But you get it right, you don't need the Chief Digital Officer. So uh, I, I think this will be a fun one to watch. What, what do you give it a, a good chance of succeeding here? Um, I think it might for a while, and then we'll see if it's sustainable. The interesting thing is, I, as I've been reading about the spec, um, it sort of, it's how I thought as a CMO, you know, I, look, and I think it's how you should think as a C-level executive. And, and to me, the difference between C-level executives and non-C-level executives is the, the percentage of time, effort, the number of initiatives and projects they work on that are cross-functional. Right, the lower you go in the org chart, the more inside the function the job tends to be. The higher up in the org chart, the more cross-functional the job tends to be. And as we know, um, when we're uh, working cross-functionally, you know, when I'm the CMO and you're the CIO, um, you know, you have your people, I have my people, you have your budgets. You can make your thing do whatever you want it to do. I can make, but in, or in order to make anything important happen, by definition, it's cross-functional. 
And so the thing that sort of was a little concerning to me is um, I think digital transformation, I think marketing technology, I think AI, machine learning, um, the, 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 the bot revolution, or some, uh, some people call it the botopolis, or however you say that, <laughs> botopolis, or whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these things are inherently cross-functional, and I think as an executive, you are only as successful, you are only as effective as you can, as you are cross-functionally effective, right? That it, so if I'm the CMO and I want to be successful, I have to be able to work powerfully with you and the IT organization if you're the CIO and vice versa, right? And the degree to which an executive, like I've been in rooms that say, well, I need more budget. And you say, okay, well, why do you need more budget? And they say, well, that way I, that's the way I can get it done. I can control this and get it done. Well, if the way you get things done is you need to be, quote, in control, hey, fire up a browser, buddy. It's 2019, right? It's not about command and control. It's actually about, um, it's, it's about being able to put together cross-functional teams and motivate and incite them and fire them up and get them to do things. Nothing legendary happens inside one function. And so on one hand, I like this cross-functional view of looking at growth across everything. But the flip side of that coin to me is, hey, um, CMO, CRO, UFO, all of you, why aren't you working together anyway? And now a quick break to hear from our sponsor. SAP Experience Management is helping businesses connect to their customers and then connect customers back to those businesses. Just listening to your customers is not enough. Businesses need to respond, react, and relate to them as individuals. Each one of them has his or her own likes, dislikes, and preferences. By combining experience data with operational data, SAP can help your business turn customer insights into actions that make their experiences better. SAP Experience Management helps you turn customers into fanatics and products into obsessions. Learn more at sap.com xm. The best on SAP. Now back to the show. I, I sure agree with that point. And it, it, we're going to chat about a, a digital transformation book that you're pre pretty keen on. But I wanted to offer one other thought on that, too, about the uh, growth officer, right? I think if you wrap around the two things, revenue and customer experience, right? The, uh, sort of the ultimate cross-functional things these days, because I think you could make an argument or I can make an argument, maybe we both could, that the purpose of all this digital transformation is two things. What it's growth and it's, you know, creating superb experiences for customers so that you can get that growth because they're going to keep coming back to you. So maybe that would be in some ways sort of a, a synthesis of those cross-functional things that you described. And I think Ultimately, these conversations about digital transformation, which is important, we've got to start kicking the door open for, okay, you did that. Now, what is it that you did it for? What yes. is the, the objective here? And how are you going to be better off and a more valuable company to do it? And maybe in that context, the CGO is, uh, and with the types of opportunities you've described can be quite important here. Yes. It's certainly, here's what I think. I don't know if it's the right answer or the wrong answer. I think it's a question CEOs should ask themselves. Do we need this function? And if we do, why? And regardless of whether or not you have the function, the idea that we are gonna have a cross-functional team whose job it is to drive breakthroughs and growth, and we're gonna look at strategic things like where can we uh, do category creation and category design and innovate in new spaces? What are things we can do with new products? And, and I think a lot of this, frankly, is technology-driven. 
uh, when, when I begin to understand that the core technology is driving what today we call digital transformation, um, I've believed for a very long time as a non-technical person who spent, you know, more than 30 years in the technology industry, that the way you begin to see opportunity uh, for growth is in part by deeply getting steeped in the technology. Because once I understand what AI is, once I understand the distinction blockchain and crypto and IoT and how all these things begin to intersect, 3D printing, you, you, know, you begin to get steeped in, there's a massive amount of innovation happening today. You begin to connect dots and you begin to see new business model opportunities, uh, breakthrough ways in which you can serve and support customers, um, even small, I'm not normally one to talk about incrementalism, but little yeah. incrementally things, yeah. you know? And so when you see these things, um, it can then have big business or strategic impacts. And so I'm a huge fan, as particularly as a non-technical person, to get deeply, uh, deep level of understanding about what's going on in the forward-leaning stuff, because I think that blows open thinking about possibilities in a way that you wouldn't be able to imagine in the absence of thinking about new uh, market or category opportunities uh, without the technology. Yeah, yeah. And Chris, then uh, on the subject of digital transformation, you, you're, uh, you're, your pal Tom Siebel has a new book. What do you think? Yes, so uh, Tom and I are longtime friends. Oh, yes. uh, so he, asked, he asked me three times what my name was before we started. But um, <laughs> just to be clear, but um, he was recently on my podcast and, uh, you know, billionaire entrepreneur, founder of Siebel Systems, sold the company to Oracle, as you well know. Um, and uh, he's got this new company called C3.ai. And he's put this new book out, Digital Transformation. And um, I, as a podcaster and an author, I think if you're going to go on a podcast, uh, um, you know, it's nice when the, when the host reads the book. And, the, and I can always tell when I guest on a podcast and they haven't read my stuff. And it's like, well, you know, and they pretend like they have. And it's like, yeah. okay, Jimmy, like this, I can get you on this one in two seconds. Um, but as a podcaster myself, uh, you know, we have a lot of authors on. And um, part of why I have them on is because I think they wrote interesting stuff. And if they wrote interesting stuff, then why wouldn't I read it? Particularly if I'm going to have a conversation with them about the stuff. So... Anyways, I think I've read more books in the last two years than, than the last 20. All that said, this new book here, Digital Transforma Transformation, I keep wanting to say transportation. I almost said transportation to Tom on the podcast. I'm like, so what about digital transportation? Um, anyway, there's a couple of big ahas in here that sort of he helped crystallize in my head. First of all, it's fairly um, detail-oriented around the technology. So he is educating on, uh, uh, you know, uh, what he calls the elastic cloud, big data, AI, IoT, AI and government, et cetera, et cetera. And the first thing I remarked at um, is, wow, Tom expects non-technology C-level executives to have this level of understanding. And I don't know, what do I know? But my guess is they're, they're not even close. And so whether you read this book or not, what I do think Tom's right about is you need a deep level of what I would call strategic understanding, if not technical understanding about these things to be a CFO today, to be a, 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 you know, a CMO or whatever, right? So I think, I think he's right about that. The second thing is the big analogy that really weaves through the book, you know, he sort of does the old extinction 
uh, bioevolution Darwin type thing, right? And he, he, the subtitle of the book is Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction. Uh, and so he's ringing the bell and he says something really interesting. Uh, let me see if I can get it, get it right. It's at the back of the book about, it's at the very end of the book. Um, he says, the coming two decades will bring more information, technology, innovation than the past half century. And Bob, when I asked him about that, he said, now having written the book, he actually thinks that's understated. Yeah, so I wonder- I'd be curious as to what your reaction is. Well, uh, we hear sometimes, you know, people talk about the end of this, the end of history, the end of technology, you know, what, how much farther can you go? And I would agree that, the, you know, I think the impact of what we're seeing going forward are gonna be more profound. I wonder if he said the next two decades, right? Versus the prior five decades, yeah, I, he I think, says that. that's I think, exactly right. I think that the time frame for going forward is going to be shorter. I'll bet the next 10 or 12 years rather than 20 will equal what's happened in the prior 50. No disrespect to the prior 50. It's just that's the arc that we're on, right? Nobody's going to put this fire out. I look at it this way. This is the one that blew me away. Uh, not this season, but last season, a young, a little girl, I don't know, eight years old, 12 years old, whatever, somewhere in that sort of range, throws out the first pitch at the San Francisco Giants game with her 3D printed hand. <laughs> what, 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 what? Like I went to bed and, and 3D printing got real. Like we heard about 3D printing five minutes ago and now little yeah. girls are playing baseball with hands. Yeah. So, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, and Tom said it when, when, you know, when he came on my podcast that, that maybe now it's even understated. Um, so I think there's a lot of important stuff. And I, my big, big takeaway is the level of strategic technology understanding about forward-leaning technologies that's required today to build and run companies, I think is massively different than it was even five years ago. And it really comes across in his book. And I, I, I think whether you read his book or not, I think you should read his book. It's interesting. Um, but whether you should, or you, whether you read this book or not, Getting steeped in this stuff, particularly for non-tech executives and for tech executives, I think what I take away is um, if I'm a CIO, CDO, you know, in that realm today, I think a huge part of my job is evangelizing what's possible with the new shit. Yeah. 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 I think I've become a business model I th and technology uh, te technology, business technology, creative uh, educator and inspirer. I want to inspire. What what can we do in customer support that would be absolutely awesome in mobile and AI and whatever it is, right? If we're a logistics company, I mean, there's such mass opportunity today uh, across a whole number of domains. So anyway, I think I think education and getting steeped in this stuff is really important. The other thing that's in here that blew me away, and of course I knew about this, but but Tom. Tom went off. Uh -huh. So there's a quote here at the beginning of chapter eight, and the quote goes like this. Artificial intelligence is the future, not only for Russia, but for all humankind. Whoever becomes the leader in this sphere will become the ruler of the world. Vladimir Putin, 2017. <laughs> so, so let's just get our head around this. This is another example of how I think the lamestream media takes us down a dumbass path. We've spent, what is it, two years now on election hacking in the United States? And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't 
be concerned about that stuff. It, it's striking at the core of the democracy. We don't want people effing around in our elections. Yes, not a dumb topic. I'm not saying that. But here, Tom goes off, and I think he's right, that we are in a nuclear-like arms race with Russia and in particular China. And there's some data here that's going to blow people's minds, I think, on China. And again, the, the lamestream media is not talking about this. We are, uh, he says we are at war and we are losing the war to China and to Russia and that we don't have, and I don't know if he said these exact words, so I don't want to put these words in his mouth. So this is me interpreting him and some of the reading I've done since he came on my podcast. We are losing the AI war. What's America's AI strategy? Um, we know for sure, I just read that, that startups um, are at uh, half the rate today than they were in the 1970s in the United States of America. And we know that uh, more, approximately 50% of uh, innovation is measured by new patent um, uh, applications comes from smaller startup oriented companies. And, and at a federal level, at a state level, where's our AR strategy, uh, AI strategy, right? And so um, you start to hear these things and then, and then you do some research. Let me see if I can grab this uh, quickly. Um, China is responsible, was responsible for 60% of uh, AI investments in 2018, uh, according to a story on politico.com. And that uh, in 2017, China's AI market was 23.7 billion, uh, and that was up 67% from the year prior, so 16 to 17. And um, they're reporting an additional 75% growth in 18 and God knows what in 19. And so if you believe Tom Siebel, if you, if you start doing your own digging and looking around, I think what you're going to see is he's right. I think we are in an AI war. And I think the United States of America has two giant problems in this regard. Number one, we don't appear to have any kind of a national AI strategy. We're not looking at this like an arms race. We're not looking at this like the race to get to the moon. We're not doing that. Or if we are, I can't find it. And in addition, if you understand what the data tells us, which is a disproportionate amount of innovation comes from early stage startups, um, and of course, a lot of those are technology oriented. Um, why aren't we focusing more here on enabling startups in the United States of America? Um, and I'll give you this data point and then, then stop for your feedback. According to Brookings, the Brookings Institute, venture investments in startups represents 0.2% of American GDP, but delivers, you ready for this? 21% of US GDP. And so we have our heads on completely wrong in this country as it relates to innovation, as it relates to startups, and as it relates to AI. We have no national strategy. We have the government is not doing the kinds of things I think they need to do to spark innovation in AI. We have no national strategy. And whether you want to look at it from an innovation point of view as measured by patents, or you want to look at it from a GDP growth point of view, uh, technology startups, startups, venture-backed startups make a massive disproportionate contribution to the United States. And um, we are at 50% the level of startup growth that we were in the 1970s. If this doesn't scare the living shit out of you, I don't know what does. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, Chris, I saw your uh, post on, I, I forget, is it LinkedIn or Twitter, both the other day about that number, you know, the, uh, the amount of funding that goes into startups versus the percent of GDP that ultimately they impact there. And that was really astonishing. And I think, as you say, you weave together a couple of those other things. We've got a decline in uh, startup activity. Uh, hard to reconcile in some ways, right, with the current mindset of a lot of young people, which is, I don't want to go work for a big company. I want to do my own thing. And maybe there is that hole in the middle that you're talking about, a national policy, a sense of, you know, what the government's role can or should be in that, uh, public-private partnerships, some of these things of the national laboratories that exist around the country that have done some phenomenal work. What's you know, what role are they playing in all of this? But uh, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. And it's good for Siebel to, uh, to have called that out at the beginning of a chapter from, what, two, two and a half years ago that Putin said that. That, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's thing I think scary. The other thing that might be helpful um, as an idea for, for folks is um, Siebel did something really cool in this new company, which is um, if you, say, want to get yourself educated in these new areas, AI, et cetera, uh, there's a set of uh, sort of um, approved uh, institutions, Stanford being one of them. And if you go and better yourself, you get, you get a degree or you even take classes, number one, um, the, his new company, C3AI, uh, will pay for them as an employee. Number two, when you complete them slash graduate, um, you get a Scooby Snack bonus. And you get an increase in salary and stock option grant. Mm -hmm. And he, he said to me um, that they have already paid out over a million bucks to employees in both paying for classes as well as providing Scooby snacks. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, he's a very smart man, of course. And there are some companies that think creating a legendary culture is about movie night on Tuesday is about, you know, free lacroix in the fridge. And I like those lacroix. I really do. I don't think they put crack in those things. I'm not, a, I'm not a bubbly water guy, but there is some crack in those lacroix and free lacroix are even better. And, and, you know, companies like Facebook and Google and a lot of these companies in Silicon Valley have created these campuses that sort of feel like Disney World. Mm -hmm. And look, all that, all that stuff is nice, but the stuff that matters is supporting people and forwarding themselves. And Tom's point of view, if I could synthesize it, is that you know, we live in a rapidly changing world and we are literally going to pay for and provide financial incentive for our people to better themselves. And he was, you know, he was telling me they have a receptionist who's now you know, getting educated in this stuff, right? And so I think making sure that you as an individual and making sure that us as a company are learning and learning in the kind of areas that matter. And I think this area of digital transformation, this area of all the new cool stuff is an area we all need to get educated in. And I think this is a policy more companies should consider uh, because I think it's a legendary investment. Well, I know you're not allowed to say anything about this upcoming third book, and I'm not even suggesting you should hint on it, but maybe if we as readers are lucky, these will be a couple things you'll dabble, dabble with. <laughs> Time will tell. It comes out in the fall, so you'll see soon. Okay, okay. So, Chris, is, uh, <clears throat> so Tom's new company there, C3A's, you know, giving employees lots of incentives to get smarter, do better things. And you've also wanted to talk about how Amazon is offering customers coupons 
to let Amazon get smarter about those customers. What do you think of that? So the story is, yeah, Amazon will give you a $10 coupon if you, you ready for this? I couldn't, I could not effing believe this. If you offer to download a thing and install it on your computer called the Amazon Assistant, it's a quote browser extension that allows users to comparison shop. And then in their terms of use contract, which of course nobody reads, but I think, I think it says here, was it the Fast Company guys? Somebody got in here and read this stuff and actually said, hey, wait a minute. Um, whoever it was says it allows them to collect and process information that includes URL, page metadata, and portions of content on whatever site you visit using Assistant, and therefore Amazon can use the data. And so what's really going on here? On one hand, as a marketer, we want all this data. I get it. You know, we just had this growth officer discussion and CDO and marketers with technology. And so I understand why Amazon wants this. I think we all have to be careful. I think we continuously and in many cases unconsciously sell our privacy for convenience. I had this experience in the last year or so. Uh, my, my wife and I showed up at the airport. We were a little late. Her fault. <laughs> of course. There's this massive line at SFO and we're like, oh, you know, and there's this, there's there are these very happy, shiny people wearing happy, yes. shiny outfits that say, hey, want to cut the line? Come on over. It's free. And, you know, my wife immediately makes a beeline. I just want to make her happy because, of course, the first thing you learn as a man when you get married is if she's not happy, you're not happy. And so all of a sudden, I'm standing there with this very friendly, well-dressed, attractive young man taking my fingerprints and putting me through the line for this thing called clear. And I get through security and I go, okay, well, that was good. And then it occurs to me, hey, what the F? I just gave these people my finger. I don't even know who they are. Was that the government? Who is that? And I'm Googling around trying to figure out who the F is clear. Well, they're a third party company run by I don't know who. And, and so that was one example. The other example, have you seen this thing uh, just recently here with this face app thing? It makes you look old. Is it called face app? Is that what it is? I, don't, I haven't seen it. I, I haven't seen this. Okay, let me make sure I get the name of it right. I don't need it. Yeah, you already know. Uh, yeah, it's called face app. And this thing's been a viral sensation. What you do is you take a picture of yourself and it projects you forward several decades and gives you a new photo of yourself, your older version. And people have been posting this stuff all over the place, right? Well, guess what we just found out? Guess who the creators of FaceApp are? Russia. <laughs> so now Russia has a database of untold millions of Americans and what they look like. You think facial recognition AI is a thing? You think they just did this because they thought it would be a fun thing to share on Facebook or Instagram? NFW, right? And so what's my point? Whether it's Amazon um, giving you the coupon or Clear, we do things, or, or this FaceApp thing, we do things for convenience. In the FaceApp example, we do things for fun. But you and I and people in general interact with technology today, and we make very rapid decisions without understanding the implication of what it might mean for our own privacy, what it might mean for our own security. And so now a company, we don't even know who they are. Clear has my fingerprints. 
and now a Russian company has a picture of everybody and and now Amazon for 10 bucks you have sold your browsing privacy to Amazon for 10 bucks the most frightening thing about all that is Amazon pretty smart company and somebody sitting back dreams this idea up and they work through it and I'm just okay if we do this how much are we going to have to pay people to do it? And I don't know, maybe somebody said, oh, you know, that's got to be a thousand bucks. And maybe somebody said, no way. These dumbasses will hand it over for 10 bucks. And the fact that a company as smart as Amazon is coming out with 10, uh, I think that's probably a pretty good assessment of either how unaware at a, to be charitable or stupid we're being about where this could go. But uh, man, that's a. Uh, hmm, I would say stupid. What does uh, what does twenty three and Me cost? Yeah, right. We pay yeah. money to give our DNA, to give our the makeup of who we are physically to a bunch of people we don't know. We pay them for that, and then they monetize our genome by selling it to the drug companies. What? <laughs> you should pay. How much? Imagine this. See, this is the ruse, and they they they, they this is the sort of the. Wizard of Oz, they present one thing when in actual fact it's a whole other yeah. thing, right? And so, so these companies, the, the DNA companies, are making zillions of dollars by selling this information. They're building this incredible database. And look, I'm not saying it's all for nefarious purposes. If, if huge drug breakthroughs come as a, as a way of understanding how genes are passed from a parent to a child and that helps us with cancer or AIDS or with I, I don't know what, uh, I don't know. Every time I turn on the TV, there appears to be a breakout of fibromyalgia. I don't even know what that is. But um, but anyway, there could be some very good things that come of this. So I, I don't want, and I'm not a Luddite, far from it. But people don't realize that we are paying these people to sell our data, right? Clear. Oh, it's free. Okay, well, now what do you know about me? Well, you know everywhere I go and you know my fingerprints. Well, People say, well, if you're not going to do anything bad, why is that a problem? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, you want to have a civil liberties discussion? Uh, I was the subject of a uh, securities and exchange investigation. And I'll tell you, when the government of the United States is, is investigating you personally, it's not fun, right? And so I, whichever dimension you want to look at it, Amazon for marketing purposes or nefarious Russians that put, that put out some free app that becomes a sensation and now they have pictures of some meaningful number of Americans. This, we, we, I, I guess my point is we have to think about every time we trade our privacy, we trade our digital footprint for something. And I think myself included, I'm as guilty as anybody. Um, we make snap decisions without even realizing what we're doing here. And to your point on Amazon, I don't know. I think they should pay us, um, you know, 250 grand for that information. People used to pay uh, individuals to go to focus groups, to taste things, to try yes. things on, to do, you got paid money to do this stuff, right? Uh, 10 bucks seems a, pr a little light to me. I'm with you, brother. And you know, uh, some of these interesting <clears throat> apps, I don't know what exactly they'd be called, a reverse auction type of thing, but, I know now the airlines seem to all have this thing on their app when they'll, you take an evening flight, they'll send you a, a text message in the morning that says, hey, we see that the flight you're on tonight is oversold. If you'd be willing to take another flight, we'll accommodate that. In fact, we'll give you some sort of reward. Tell us how much you require 
to be moved from this. And then, you know, they got a lot of different bids and they picked their people that way. I think it's pretty smart. So maybe Amazon should, uh, you know, ultimately maybe that thing of more informed consumers using our judgment a little better, maybe it'll lead to those sorts of things where, hey, you want to give us all this stuff? What's your price? Um, I, I hope it land. Look, I'm generally an optimist and I believe in humankind. And I think history tells us the Luddites are pretty much always wrong. That said, uh, we're playing with the machines here. We're, we're in a yeah. different, this is, this is, I know it, yeah, yeah, yeah. every time somebody says this is different, it's not, right? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe this, this technology, this AI, I, I think there's something worth paying attention to. And on a side note, by the way, we discovered an airline trick recently for screwing consumers. You ready for this? Swiss Air. So my family is making plans to go to Italy. The whole family, you know, large Italian family, 12 million of them going back to Italy. <laughs> so that is uh, big. huge, you know, Italians, Catholics make more Italians. Um, and so, um, so anyway, my wife calls her sister and says, hey, I just found this great deal on Swiss Air for, I don't know, two or three grand or whatever it is, right? And, um, and then her sister looks at it, says, oh, yeah, I see that too. Sister calls back six, eight hours later. She goes, I just checked the price again. It went from two or three grand to like 12 grand. So the, I can hear the two of them on the phone getting all wrapped around the axle. I said, try it from a different browser or a different computer. So they went on with a different computer and it was the prior lower price. And so these nefarious bastards at Swiss Air have some kind of technology. I don't know if it's, it's a cookie or what it is, right? But you go on and when you first look at it, it's two or three grand. But if you don't buy now and you look at it again an hour later, two hours later, it's 12 grand. Lord. That's nefarious shit right there. Yeah. Well, you could hope that, uh, that they'll, they'll reap what they sow here and that uh, word of that will get out and people, you know, find something better or their competitors will say, hey, let's come in and do something different. I, but I'm with you. You've got to be optimistic and ultimately dumb ideas are going to come back and bite the seller. Um, Chris, you also wanted to, I think uh, there was one other thing you wanted to talk about. Your, I know you've got incredible respect for some folks in the venture capital community. And there are some other uh, VC individuals or organizations that you don't think so highly of. So what's this latest one that's gotten under your saddle? Yeah, so I, I, we recently had Randy Komazar of Kleiner Perkins uh, fame on, on my podcast. Incredibly smart guy, entrepreneur, used to be the CEO of uh, George Lucas's company, worked for years with Steve Jobs. I mean, you know, venture capitalist, you, you, you can't have, he's written a couple of books. He wrote a great book called The Monk and the Riddle, super smart guy. Um, and a real leader in Silicon Valley. Anyway, he and Paul Martino recently got together and launched a new podcast that is all about the, the learnings and the teachings of the legendary CEO coach, Bill Campbell, who was the coach to Eric Schmidt, who was the coach to Bezos, and of course, famously on the board and coach to Jobs, right? And, and so they had all these recordings of Bill towards the end of his life, and they, they put those together in a podcast. Anyway, they've done this wonderful thing. It's called the No Bull Podcast. I'm a huge fan. Highly, highly recommend it. So Randy and I have this discussion. And then offline, he and I get together for coffee, and we start talking about what's happened over the last 15 years in Silicon Valley. And, and a set of ideas started to crystallize in my head. And essentially, what you had after the bubble 
was you began to see big Wall Street start to intervene in venture capital. So you had private equity firms coming, quote unquote, down the, the, the ecosystem and starting to get involved with uh, venture capital. And the aha for the private equity firms, and in particular, the mutual fund folks, was the following. A red hot startup goes public and let's say your Fidelity, your Putnam, you're all these sorts of folks who invest in IPOs. Well, when a red hot company goes public, you know, typically they're floating 10, 15, maybe 20% of the company. So it's a small number of shares to begin with. And if they're a red hot company, there's going to be all this demand. And so what the Wall Street folks started to do more than a decade now ago is, is they started to whisper in the ear of entrepreneurs and say, hey, um, and, and by the way, um, um, KKR's done this, you know, the big PE firms. So lots of big Wall Street money types showed up in Silicon Valley quietly 15 or so years ago. And they started to whisper in the ear of entrepreneurs. And they said, hey, don't go public. Going public sucks. Rather than go public, just do a giant financing round with us. And they started to bid these companies up. This is how people like Uber and others got these massive valuations was there was huge demand and you'd have uh, non-traditional uh, Wall Street types playing at venture capital. And uh, some people called this private IPOs, right? And if you notice the age of companies going public today is much older than it was in the 90s, which I think on balance is probably a good thing. There's a lot of negativity for these private IPOs. We could get into it if you care. But here's the aha. I had a conversation in the last three or so weeks with an entrepreneur who I can't name because it's, it's not appropriate. This entrepreneur was responsible for creating a company that today is worth approximately $20 billion. And he's starting a new startup. And so I was excited to talk to him. And we're, he's telling me all about it. It sounds like he's doing some cool stuff, this and that and so forth and so on. And I said to him, let's just call him Jimmy for the sake of argument. I said, so Jimmy, I'm curious, why are you still working? I thought if he wasn't a billionaire, I figured 250, 100, 500, some giant crazy number, right? And he goes, well, on my last company, XYZ Corp, the $20 billion value company, he said, I, I didn't make much money. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we made a very big mistake. For our series, it was either D or E, I can't remember now, but it was in that range. They were in one of these hyper growth, one of these blitz scale type opportunities. They became the category king. They beat back a whole number of companies who are also equally well-funded. Um, and so he had great experience on designing and dominating a category and dealing with a massive com competitive landscape. But in order to do all these financings, without realizing it, he was giving up a bigger and bigger percentage of the company and bigger, bigger control. And so at the end of the day, guess who owned most of the company? Private equity and Wall Street. And he made some money, but nowhere near what you could argue the architect of a $20 billion value creation event is. So I connected the dot. I had that conversation and the conversation with Randy at around the same time. And Randy and I were talking about the old days of Silicon Valley and how VC and startups used to work and so forth and so on. And here was my aha. There is a huge distinction between venture capitalists who are financial engineers 
who are concerned with what you could think of as value extraction. And those are the new entrants. Those are the folks who've shown up over the last decade. They are value extraction engineers. The late stage folks who are doing these things are not contributing to building new value. They're getting on a train that's already running, okay? Silicon Valley was built by entrepreneurs who partnered with what I would call craft VCs. And those craft VCs are focused on value creation. These are the VCs who get in in the early stages. These are the VCs who provide way more than money. They're, they're former entrepreneurs themselves. They have amazing Rolodexes. They've taken many companies public. They see much pattern recognition. And I have believed that for a long time that the venture business is inherently unscalable. It's like the surfboard um, uh, shaping business. You can buy an off-the-rack surfboard made by a machine. They surf like shit. If you want to surf a real surfboard, you go to a craft uh, a shaper is what they're called. Okay. And there's a huge difference. And I think VC is a lot like surfboard shaping. It's a craft industry. It's highly niched down. They're, they're VCs who, you know, we just had Cody Sanchez on. She's one of the early pioneers in cannabis VC. They've niched down in fo and they're even niching down inside of cannabis. Right. And so what's my point? The Silicon Valley that I grew up in, and I think Randy agrees with me uh, that he grew up in, was uh, entrepreneurs partnering with craft VCs to create new value where none existed. And a craft-oriented, entrepreneur-first-oriented venture capitalist would never allow this Jimmy to have created, even if he, even if he effed up the cap table himself and, and didn't realize on preferences, and, you know, entrepreneurs don't know these things, right? These are inane if you're busy trying to build a company, understanding all this stuff, and even if you do understand it, maybe you say, listen, I got, I got my foot on the pedal. Yeah. I'm competing with all these guys. I need to take the money and run, and there's no way this is going to end up being bad for me. Well, guess what? The financial engineering VCs who are value extractors are screwing entrepreneurs and the employees of these companies because they're value extractors traditional craft VCs would never let this happen, ever. The folks at Sequoia would never let this happen. Randy Comazar from Kleiner Perkins would, 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 would do everything possible, and I, I know I'm speaking for him, but I think I know him well enough to say this, to make sure that the entrepreneur and the people with stock options in that company, that their day would come because they created the value. And so... Uh, it is just crystallized in my head what's happened over the last 15 or so years in Silicon Valley. And the cautionary tale, I think, is be very, very careful. There's this old Hebrew expression that says, if you lay down with dogs, don't be surprised when you get fleas. And there's a very big distinction between a craft VC who's focused on entrepreneurship, who has expertise in an area, and who is partnered with the, 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 the founders and the employees in trying to create value. And then as a result of their investments, you know, make money. I'm not talking about Mother Teresa here, but making sure that the, the sharing in the value makes some freaking sense. Well, when you do business with these Wall Street types, 
they don't give a shit about any of that. They want as much for them as possible, end of discussion. And so my hope is that entrepreneurs begin to understand this distinction between VCs who are on value creation and VCs who are on value extraction, and they don't sell their soul to the value extraction devil. Chris, that's a, it's an important lesson. I, I hope people will, uh, will pay attention there. And I think the way you've categorized these, you know, traditional craft VCs and then the, uh, you know, financial engineering firms that are value extractors. That's what they're focused on, not the, not the longer term play. So we've had a fun run here from, you know, chief growth officers, AI, you know, books, different things, uh, you know, Russia, China, what's going on there. Tom Siebel, a entrepreneur who sort of recreated himself here now as an author. Uh, I really like the point that you made about whether you're in the tech industry or not, executives in any business, they have to understand this technology, the impact of it. It sounds like the book you recommended from him is going to be a good primer for a lot of folks on that. And then this, uh, you know, the cautionary tale here at the end here about be careful uh, who you lie down with because uh, fleas are out there and it just, it depends. So Chris, uh, as always, you know, fantastic episode. Thank you. Thank you. Always enjoyable. So which one do you want to go with? Respectful disrespect or occasionally disrespectful respect? What, what's, your, what's your approach? Um, what was the second one? <laughs> disrespectful respect. I think you're more a respectful disrespect sometimes. There you go. I, I like that one. I'll go with you on that one, Bob. So uh, another step forward in our path toward, uh, toward adulthood. I'm, I'm enjoying the journey with you. I, as am I. I love you. I love hanging out in your brain. I love being on your podcast. I'm so stoked you're doing this. I think uh, there were probably few people in the world as happy as me when you told me you were going to start this podcast. So thank you for having me. And thank you for another a wide ranging set of uh, uh, allowing me to, uh, to uh, get into a wide ranging set of things that uh, have been on my mind. And I thought that maybe you would find uh, interesting as well. I do. I do, Chris. And I know the folks in the audience, you're, uh, you're always a favorite with them. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in with us. And uh, Professor Lockhead will be back with us next month <clears throat> for another episode of Lockhead on Different. Thanks for being here and we'll catch you next time.